Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into theology of the body. We are in this work authored by Christopher West titled Fill These Hearts and specifically uh, chapter 6, which is titled Exposing and Stretching Our Hearts. So this is the chapter where we have the opportunity to talk about theology of the body in the context of prayer to talk about theology of the body in the context of the spiritual life. It is to remember, when we talk about the spiritual life, what are we talking about? But the seeking, right? The seeking. Uh, This is what lies at the heart of our faith, at the heart of our journey towards God. Whatever age you are, whether you are retired, a 40-something, a young adult, or a teenager, we are called to seek the face of Christ in our spiritual journey. We are called to seek the face of Christ in everything that we do. This is what the spiritual life is all about. And we've arrived at a point in this uh, chapter where we have the opportunity to talk about what Christopher West talks about as getting naked before God. What does that mean? (laughs) Getting naked before God. That's quite provocative. Yet there's something within the mystical tradition that really speaks to this need to be uh, naked before God. What does that mean? Well, let us first remember that we need to bear our hearts to God. We need to be open to God in every way. What does the psalmist pray in chapter 38, verses 9 to 10? All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My groans are not hidden from you. My heart throbs. You know, it's interesting. You hear that word throb, and what do you think of? Well, isn't uh, he a heartthrob, or isn't she a heartthrob? What are we saying when we say that? To speak of that throbbing is to speak of that ache, is to speak of that desire. Well, rightfully so. If we see someone and we are quote-unquote throbbing for them, it is only something that speaks of a much deeper truth about how we are called to seek, to love, and to what? Throb for God, huh? So we are called to expose our hearts to God in a way that truly does teach us humility, mindful that it is pride that leads us to hide in the first place, right? We touched upon it last week. Hiding is a pattern that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.10, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So we know our sinfulness is ugly, and we think no one could possibly love us as we really are. So we pretty ourselves up in order to be loved and accepted, all the while rejecting who we truly are. What do we do? We take on a false identity, hiding our true broken selves behind a great many masks. My dear friends, we all have masks, and the question we have to ask is, what mask do we wear? Or what uh, fig leaf do we hide behind? <laughs> huh? The more we hide, 
the more we begin to wonder, if I'm only loved when I'm wearing a mask, am I really loved? Can anyone really love me when all the masks are removed, when my ugliness is on display, when all the fig leaves are gone? We don't only want to be loved at our best. We want, in fact, we could properly say, we need to be loved at our worst. We need to be loved in our nakedness, warts, blemishes, and all. Never forget that most salient truth that comes to us about the sacrament of confession. Every time we go to the sacrament of confession, every time we go before God, seeking His mercy, what does that encounter look like? We go to God with our worst, and in doing so, we get God's best, His mercy. Always have that great truth ever before you. So, as it relates to prayer, in the journey of prayer, we are seeking nuptial union with the bridegroom, as the mystical tradition puts it. And to go with this image, if spouses want to unite, they need to do what? Take their clothes off. huh? This may be startling and perhaps even a scandalous idea for some, but not if we understand the deep mystical sense in which the one flesh union of spouses images Christ's love for the church. God wants to enter our hearts and have us enter into His in a way that is analogous to the intimacy of spouses. But we have to be willing to be completely naked before Him. According to the words of sacred scripture, John Paul II writes, God penetrates the creature who is completely naked before him. I want to pause here and go back to the book of Revelation. Why might I be talking about the book of Revelation in this subject matter? Well, if you go into what the word means, that is revelation in the Greek, and go into its historical context, we come across a fascinating truth. The word itself, revelation, comes from the Greek apocalypsus, which uh, has many meanings, I suppose, but the one best meaning is unveiling. But it was more than just a lifting up of something. It was, yes, a lifting up of something, but that was tied to something much bigger. What do I mean? Well, the Apocalypsus was a seven-day affair, a seven-day event, where the bride would get to know the groom's family, and the groom would get to know the bride's family. And on the seventh day, the groom would lift his bride up in a canopy, and they would go into their honeymoon suite. And it was at that point when they went into their honeymoon suite, which was basically a tent, right? The groom would lift the veil of the bride. <clears throat> now, what happens on honeymoon night? Well, two become one. You see, my dear friends, what the evangelist John wants us to see in the book of Revelation is that two become one. That is why, oh by the way, the book of Revelation is indeed about the marriage supper of the Lamb, about the Eucharist, where two become one. So be rest assured, what we are talking about here is steeped in sacred scripture, and in many ways lies at the heart of the book of Revelation. That being said, it was John Paul II who insisted that we have a duty to show the world to what depths the relationship with Christ we have can lead to, huh? 
a journey that is totally sustained by grace, which nonetheless demands an intense spiritual commitment and is no stranger to painful purifications, but, as he notes, one that leads to ineffable joy experienced by the mystics as what? Nuptial union. You see, for so many of us, we think about the two becoming one and the joy that that brings. What God wants us to see is what we look forward to in that encounter is only a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the eternal bliss that awaits us all. So here on earth, the Lord longs, thirsts, pines to enter this union with us in the intimacy of our hearts so he can show us that he loves us as we are, as he created us in his image and likeness, male and female. And of course, he always does so with a tender love, even if it can feel, as Christopher West puts it, violent at times. The Lord accomplishes this exposure of our hearts at times through painful trials that the mystical tradition calls strippings or dark nights. You may have heard that phrase before, uh, dark nights or the dark night of the soul. A spiritual theologian by the name of Father Jacques Philippe, who you have heard me uh, quote before, Christopher West highlights his reflection that I would like to read on how we might better understand the word purification. He says this, The trials or purifications so frequently referred to by the mystics are there to destroy whatever is artificial in our character so that our true being may emerge. The dark night of the soul could be called a series of impoverishments, sometimes violent ones that strip believers of all possibility of relying on themselves. These trials are beneficial because they lead us to locate our identity where it truly belongs. They also deprive us of any possibility of relying on ourselves and the good that we can do. God's mercy is all. Progressively, and in a way that parallels their terrible impoverishment, those who go through such trials while still hoping in the Lord begin to realize the truth of something that up until then was only a pious expression. Father Jacques Philippe closes, God loves us in an absolutely unconditional way by virtue of his fatherhood towards us. So as we are reminded in Psalm chapter 107, verse 9, the Father satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things, freely offering bread from heaven, endowed with all delights and conforming to every taste. But here's the catch. We must learn how to wait upon the Lord. Now, what is that passage from James chapter 5, verses 7 and following? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You too, James says, must be patient. Make your hearts firm. What do we read in Psalm 27? Wait for the Lord with courage. Be stout-hearted and wait for the Lord. My dear friends, it's in the waiting that our desires are stretched. And while it may seem painful, ultimately, it is what is necessary if we are going to advance in 
uh, the seeking if we are going to advance in our prayer life. Now, drawing from St. Augustine's uh, definition of prayer as an exercise of desire, Benedict XVI writes this, and I love this, man was created for greatness, for God himself. He was created to be filled by God, but his heart is too small for the greatness to which it is destined. It must be stretched. Christopher West notes St. Augustine there. What does St. Augustine actually say? Well, he says this, when you would fill a purse, knowing how large a present it is to hold, you stretch wide its cloth or leather, knowing how much you are to put in it and seeing that the purse is small. You extend it to make more room. So by delaying his gift, God strengthens our longing. Through longing, he expands our soul. And by expanding our soul, he increases its capacity. Augustine continues, So brethren, let us long because we are to be filled. That is our life, to be trained by longing. And our training through the holy longing advances in the measure that our longings are detached from the love of this world. Let us stretch ourselves out towards him, that when he comes, he may fill us full. Now here, love of the world refers to what? Our idolatrous attachment to created things, huh? In short, to be trained by longing means to learn how to take our longing for infinity, literally to infinity, and to settle for nothing less than infinity. And it is in this uh, continuation of a kind of dilation of our hearts where our desire increases until we are convinced that there really and truly is nothing in this world that can possibly satisfy it. Only then, my dear friends, are we going to be willing and able to truly let go of our idols, those created things that we turn to as uh, God substitutes. So once we are truly able to let go of our idols, we learn what the saints call detachment from the pleasures and riches of this world. Now, detachment does not mean we become cold or unfeeling toward the true gifts and pleasures this life has to offer. Remember, the goal here is not stoicism. Uh, the goal is mysticism. When we are properly trained by longing, every pleasure in this life is like what Christopher West calls a teaser for heaven. I love that, a teaser for heaven. So true detachment affords the freedom to rejoice rightly in the good things of this life without making idols of them. Freedom is all about creating that space, that necessary space to see things for what they are versus what they are not. If we are hoarding something, are we free? No, it is only in the pulling back, the stepping back, that we can begin to appreciate a thing for what it is. Think about being uh, nose close to a picture. Can you actually identify what that picture is? No, but only in taking steps back can you begin to see the picture for what it is. So true detachment affords the freedom to rejoice rightly in the good things of this life without making idols of them. That is so important. Now, contrary to widespread belief and practice, if one is 
idolatrously attached to the pleasures of this world. The solution, my dear friends, is not to uh, turn down the volume on our desires, but to turn the volumes up. And again, as Christopher West notes, way up. This may be surprising, even unsettling for some of us, but it can't be otherwise. As St. Teresa of Avila reminds us, we must have great confidence, for it is necessary not to hold back one's desire. St. Catherine of Siena says, if you would make progress, you must be thirsty, because those who are not thirsty will never persevere in their journey. My dear friends, if we stop thirsting in this life, if we stop seeking in this life, if we stop desiring in this life, we have either repressed our desire or some idol is posing as our satisfaction. And what happens? The journey itself ceases. The journey itself becomes complacent, and ultimately our souls go dormant. Is this what we want in the Christian journey? This is the question I pose to you. That being said, when we say we need to turn our desires up, we are not saying we should fan the flame of our disordered desires. No, what we are saying here is that disordered desire, however it may manifest itself in our individual lives, is a reduction of the original fullness of desire with which God created us. We talked about this, I think, some, uh, some three, four weeks ago. Huh? When we find ourselves idolatrously attached to pornographic images, for example, we are experiencing this tragic reduction of eros. The ultimate solution to the problem, therefore, cannot lie in reducing eros even more than it already has been reduced. John Paul II says this, and I think this is so important to this point. We must come to experience that fullness of eros, that fullness of eros, which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit towards what is true, good, and beautiful, so that what is erotic also becomes true, good, and beautiful. Turning eros then way up means precisely what? Rediscovering the lost fullness of eros as a desire for the infinite, as a desire for God. My dear friends, God put this desire in us, and therefore we must seek understanding. Therefore, we must seek a better understanding of why he put it there. And again, to say that is really to get into the heart of why we study theology of the body. This is a long and difficult journey, but it is one made possible by God's grace. Think about it. If the banquet, which is defined as infinite satisfaction of our desire in God, is real, then, my dear friends, there's no need to repress desire as the starvation diet gospel, as Christopher West put it, would have us do. And there's no need to reduce desire to, as Christopher West put it, the addicting finite pleasures as the fast food gospel would have us do. Rather, if the banquet is real, we can, and we can say must, learn how to unleash desire so God can fill us full. That 
is what the journey of prayer is all about. That is what the spiritual life is all about. And I know for some of this, this seems so daunting, (laughs) so maybe even far-fetched. I'm just not there, I've been told on a number of occasions, Joe. Um, But my dear friends, wherever God has you right now, start there anew, mindful that in the end, our desire to know God is a grace that God puts inside of us, and that is when the journey authentically begins when we respond to that grace. There is a prayer that Christopher West has here. I'd like to uh, read this. He says, Lord, into your hands I commend the sanctification of my every desire. I desire you, increase my desire in you. So here we have this journey of stretching our desire, a journey that is exemplified powerfully in the loving size of the bride in the Song of Songs. You have heard us go to that book before. You know, we, we read how she is sick with love, huh? as her desire compels her to search without ceasing for her lover. Uh, Song chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 reads, I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city. I will seek him who my heart loves. And how about chapter 5, verse 6 and 8? I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My heart failed me. I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I am sick with love. I mean, commenting on this uh, agony of the bride's unsatisfying yearning for the bridegroom, we see saints to the likes of uh, Augustine, Gregory and Bernard of Clairvaux tell us that Christ keeps his bride waiting. Why? But to increase and stretch her desire. What do we mean by that? Desire is the faculty that not only pines after the divine gift, but also receives it when it is given. So the wider our desire, the more we are capable of receiving, huh? Christ wants us to be as wide open to his gift as possible, stretched in our desire unto infinity, because that's what he has to offer us, the wild ecstasy of infinite bliss. So like the bride in the Song of Songs, our search for this ecstasy will only involve the agony of loss, but the agony itself ultimately becomes a prayer as it is the ecstasy to which it leads. This is why the mystical tradition speaks to both the prayer of agony and the prayer of ecstasy. And this simply means sharing in the sufferings of Christ so that we might also share in the infinite joy and glory. By way of analogy, consider the mountain climber. For the mountain climber to reach the summit, to reach the peak, he is going to have to deal with what? agony. He's going to have to deal with suffering. He's going to have to deal with trial. If he's going to reach the summit, if he's going to reach the peak, if he is going to know the true ecstasy for which every mountain climber seeks, that new air at the height of the mountain, then he must endure difficult times. And ultimately, my dear friends, those trials 
those sufferings are necessary for the true joy, the true bliss that the mountain climber uh, will come to know. So it is the same with the spiritual life. If we are going to know true ecstasy, then we must first know true agony. Love has two faces, sorrow and joy. To come to know one is to come to know the other. So important. St. Teresa of Avila says, all these sufferings that we experience are meant to increase one's desire to enjoy who? The spouse. So the new air, if you will, that we will breathe is the very air of the Holy Spirit, the very air of God himself. Teresa of Avila continues, God is enabling the soul through these afflictions and many others to have the courage to be joined with so great a Lord and to take him as its spouse. In short, my dear friends, God teaches us courage in the prayer of agony because we need even more courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. What does that mean? (laughs) What kind of ecstasy then must God have in store for us? Whatever it is, the Apostle Paul says our sufferings are what? Nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Amen. Uh, You have heard me mention Father Simon Tugwell before here. Christopher West uh, quotes him. He certainly puts it beautifully here when he says, The gift with which God makes himself in this life is known chiefly in the increase of our desire for him. And that desire, being love, is infinite, and so stretches our mortal life to its limits. And that stretching is our most earnest joy, but it is also our most earnest suffering in this life. So those who hunger and thirst, even now, truly blessed, but their blessedness is that of those who mourn. Amen. And Christopher West closes this chapter with a couple of Beatitudes from the Gospel of Luke. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who mourn now, for you will laugh. Amen. With that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.